Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcast, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Well Style, the Opus Well Style podcast. Uh, my name is Yvonne Watanabe. I'll be your host alongside my partner here, Evan Wall. What's going on, Evan? How are you? Hey, Yvonne. Happy to be here. What's going on? All is good. All is good. I, uh, we are extremely excited to have on uh, our guest today, Wade Fow. Wade, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. So I'm particularly excited about having Wade on. Wade, I'm just going to try my best to quickly introduce you. Uh, your accolades are are pretty uh, substantial here. So Wade is a PhD, CFA, RICP, founder of retirementresearcher.com, uh, also a professor of retirement research at the um, College of Fin American College of Financial Services, uh, and also a PhD in economics from Princeton University. So uh, needless to say, we're talking with a subject matter expert here in something that we all care very much about, which is retirement planning. So uh, Wade, thank you so much for being on with us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Awesome. So Wade, we wanted to kind of set the stage for you and have you share with our listening audience some of the research and some of the insights that you've come to uh, over the last several years of, of uh, your professional career and some of the things that we really, frankly, base our financial planning concepts um, when we present to clients on different strategies. So, um, you know, Evan, where do you think we should start with Wade and, and what do you think, uh, what topic do you think would be best to start with? I think there's <clears throat> first of all, ton. Uh, Wade, thanks, thanks again for for being on here. We're uh, you're you're a bit of a celebrity in uh, in our industry, so yeah. I'd say most people outside of financial planning, maybe not so much, but uh, inside certainly our office, uh, you are. So can't speak highly enough about all of your work, uh, the books, the podcast, the website, newsletter. You are quite prolific, and so I think it probably makes sense to start with the title of your uh, of your website, Retirement Researcher, right? So it's about retirement. And it's not just about retirement, but getting to retirement. Um, and so maybe wait, if you could kind of talk us through the differences, what are the what are the key differences that you see uh, between the accumulation phase of life and the retirement phase of life that that need to be addressed? Sure, sure. And I think that's an important question, just because that really what it's what makes retirement income as something distinct from just general wealth management. And to really start to think about the differences in the pre-retirement world with accumulation, people can really get away with just the, the assumptions of modern portfolio theory of just you're focusing on assets only, you're trying to grow a pot of assets and you're not really too concerned about what those assets may be used for. I mean, of course, the idea is you're saving for retirement, but mainly you're living off your salary. You're hopefully saving something. The investments are kind of on the side and you can really focus on a long-term perspective of seeking the highest risk adjusted returns. Now that changes in retirement. 
you have to make a transition from, I'm no longer spending from my salary. I now have to spend from my assets. I have to take distributions to fund my lifestyle. And that creates a few challenges. One is just it's longevity. We don't know how long we're going to live in retirement. So we really don't know how quickly we can spend down our assets. And if we do it too quickly, we might run out uh, before the end of life. But then at the same time, if we don't spend quickly enough, so to speak, we may just really underspend and not get full satisfaction out of retirement. Then there's the market risk and market volatility. And when you start to spend from a portfolio, what it does is it amplifies the impact of investment volatility. Because if there's a market downturn and you're spending from a declining portfolio, those assets are gone and they don't get to benefit from any subsequent market recovery. So a market downturn has a bigger impact on retirees. And then also you just have spending shocks, which of course can also exist pre-retirement, but post-retirement, things like long-term care, big healthcare bills and so forth can have a bigger impact where if it's not something that's part of the budget and you suddenly have this large surprise expense, well, you really have to think about how are you going to manage those types of spending shocks as well. And, and that's, at the end of the day, what makes retirement different. The longevity, the amplified investment risk in the spending shocks in retirement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, one of the theories previously was sort of when we're starting to plan for retirement and, and actually trying to understand, you know, how much money to withdraw from the assets that we've accumulated over that span of time. You know, there used to be this idea of sort of a safe withdrawal rate. Can you just share a little bit with the, the audience about sort of what that is, what it used to be, what it sort of currently is based off of your recent research? Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And, and so there are different approaches people take to retirement. And one is very much embedded in a investments only world where the idea is to build a diversified investment portfolio. And a lot of that extends from the research Bill Benkin did in the 1990s where he looked at US historical data and said, well, what if you got the market returns from different points in history? How much could you have spent from your investments? And he said, retirees holding 50 to 75% stocks in retirement should generally expect that something like a 4% initial distribution rate should be sustainable. That if I took 4% from my portfolio in the first year of retirement, and I increased that spending for inflation, my money should it last at least 30 years. And that's based on historical, different rolling 30-year periods from history. Uh, the 4% rule had always worked. Now that's where, when I came into retirement planning, this was my introduction to it. I had a data set that was not just US historical returns, but returns for 20 different developed market countries going back to 1900. And I was just curious, did the 4% rule work with other countries' data? And the answer is it worked in the US and Canada, but that's it. It did not work in the other 18 countries. And around the world, the 4% rule worked about two thirds of the time historically. So I thought that was pretty important information that just if we're thinking about planning for the future, we draw from a more typical market experience rather than just the 20th century US market performance when the US became the world's leading superpower and so mm -hmm. forth. And uh, that, that becomes more philosophical, though, with, well, is other countries' financial market data relevant to a U.S.-based investor? But then that just led me down this path of all these other issues. And I, I got involved in retirement planning around 2010. So the entire time I've been in this area, we could talk about a low interest rate world. That's now changing for the first time, and it's, it's really impacting how I have to talk about some of these things. 
But in a low interest rate world, that means you're going to be able to spend less from an investment portfolio. And the the 4% rule was never challenged by low interest rates, high stock market valuations, and so forth, all happening at the same time. And so that I thought was an additional challenge on something like the 4% rule. Now in 2022, markets are down quite a bit, but at the same time, whatever somebody has today, we're getting to a situation where the the kind of historical safety that we think 4% would provide, we might be getting back towards something like that today. But I would just generally speaking, if you really want to have a high degree of safety with a distribution strategy from investments, rather than just treating 4% as some sort of guarantee, quote unquote, uh, something more like three to 4% is probably more reasonable. But now with interest rates coming up, definitely getting closer to the 4% than the 3% side of that spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And and how often are you sort of re-engineering that, that percentage rate? And and so it sounds like obviously market cycles and those types of things are, are factoring into your analysis. Um, what are the other things besides inflation that folks should be sort of considering when they're making that analysis around how much to withdraw? Well, yeah, inflation is important too, because inflation has been low for a long time. Mm-hmm. And there really does seem to be a sequence of inflation risk. You can see that as simple as just suppose one year there'll be 10% inflation and then every other year there's 0% inflation. If that 10% inflation rate happens the first year of retirement, that's raising the cost of that retirement by 10% across because that that's built in forever at that point. Because that was the starting point. Yeah, yeah. If it, and if it came much later, it's just impacting at the tail end of the retirement. It's having a smaller impact. So that partly now that inflation is picking up again as well, that does create a, a risk for something like the 4% rule. I don't know if it's as big of risk as the low interest rate world that we experienced before was, but it definitely is an offsetting factor that with higher inflation today, that that is another reason to be cautious with any sort of distribution strategy. That's interesting. I've heard you speak about and write about sequence of return risk as it relates to market returns, not yet sequence of return risk as it relates to uh, inflation risk. So that's that's interesting. Uh, maybe for our listeners, would you mind sharing what is sequence of returns and how does that play into your thinking around retirement planning? Sure, sure. And so sequence of returns risk is really what when I said earlier that investment volatility gets amplified in retirement, it's really the due to sequence of returns risk. It's this idea that if there's no cash flows, there's no sequence risk. So like if I invest a lump sum amount in the market and I leave it alone for the next 30 years, the order of the market returns doesn't matter. I, I'd always have the same balance at the end of that 30 year period. But as soon as I introduce cash flows, and in particular in retirement, if I'm spending from that portfolio, there is sequence risk. The order of returns matters. If I get a big market downturn early on, and I'm trying to meet a spending obligation, I have to sell a higher and higher percentage of what's left. That digs a hole for the portfolio. It becomes harder and harder for any sort of market gains to restore the the value of the portfolio. The the portfolio is not getting to enjoy the full market recovery because there's less left in it. And so the early market returns have a disproportionate impact. You can even see it with the 4% rule because like when Bill Bingen did that analysis, 
It's the years 1966 to 1995, that 30-year period that gave us the 4% rule. Now, over that 30-year period, the average market return wasn't necessarily all that bad. After 1982, about halfway through that retirement, markets did really well. And actually, the 1982 was the best case scenario for a withdrawal rate, where with the market returns from 1982 to 2011, you could have used close to a 10% distribution rate compared to 4% retiring in 1966. But that's the idea. Even though the second half of that 1966 retirement was some of the best market returns in history, the 1966 retiree didn't really get to benefit from that because their portfolio was too spent down by the time they got to 1982, that they just experienced a much lower realized return on their portfolio than what the overall markets would have experienced during that 30-year retirement. And that's what sequence of returns risk does. It it works in both directions. If you get a good sequence of market returns early on, it can put you into great shape throughout retirement. But with the risk of it, it's if you get a poor, if you get a market downturn early in retirement and the market doesn't recover quickly enough, that can really dig a hole for a portfolio that leads to a much lower sustainable spending amount than you might necessarily think looking just at average market returns over that period. Right. And, and, you know, it becomes a really difficult conversation for us to have with our clients when they're approaching retirement or sort of have picked the day and time in mind, because the reality is we, we, we certainly have no, you know, no ability to predict when those down market years are going to happen and, and when they coincide with retirement years. And the second part of the conversation then becomes, okay, well, do you want to retire a year later, right? Or two years later or three years later, do you actually want to do that? Um, and that's a difficult conversation to have if somebody hasn't planned correctly for, for several years leading up to that retirement piece. So that risk is something that we are well aware of. And we try to have that conversation with folks early on. I, I think one of the things that you've you've spoken a lot about in in ways to mitigate that sequence of returns risk being sort of buffer asset classes. Um, can you just share a little bit with the audience about what a buffer asset is and you know what are the types and and sort of which one you would recommend or which one do you find to be the most efficient in, in some of the studies that you put together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the idea of a buffer asset is it's something you hold outside your investment portfolio. It's not correlated with the investment portfolio. And even more strongly, what it generally means is it can't lose value. So it could grow, but it's not going to lose value. And it can then provide a temporary spending resource so that if the markets are down, rather than selling from your portfolio to cover a spending need, you temporarily shift to spending from the buffer asset. You leave your portfolio alone and then your portfolio has more opportunity that if markets do recover, the uh, portfolio gets to enjoy the full recovery rather than selling from it in a declining market. And so at the end of the day, I'm really, there's only three buffer assets that I'm comfortable saying it's a true buffer asset because it does, it needs to be liquid. You need easy access to it. And you want that access to be such that it's, you get the full value out of it. You, you're not subject to any losses. Going back to the 1980s, the original buffer asset was cash and this idea of just having a big pile of cash sitting on the sidelines, not part of the portfolio that you could spend from on a temporary basis. And we've seen research over the years just pointing out that the drag created by that cash uh, is such that it may not be the best buffer asset 
And then depending on the person's opportunities and situation, the two other buffer assets would be cash value of a whole life insurance policy or the growing line of credit on a, a variable rate home equity conversion mortgage, or also more commonly known as a reverse mortgage. You know, the primary role generally of life insurance is sort of to provide a death benefit, but tell, explain a little bit about how the cash value would work inside of a, a whole life insurance policy specifically. So you mentioned that versus some of the other types of policies that are out there. Uh, can you just share a little bit more about why, why that one fits potentially? Mm -hmm. Yeah, with whole life insurance, you have more protections about the cash value, can't lose value, premiums can't be increased on you and that sort of thing. And so it, using structuring policy loans from the policy, that's the way to tap into that and to have income that then is not added to your adjusted gross income, which can help reduce the distribution need to provide that sort of bridge on spending. It's been called a volatility buffer or a buffer asset when used in that context. And it can have a big impact. I I made my career out of just writing computer simulations of different retirement strategies. And uh, looking at this sort of thing, it's this sequence of returns risk. It's small changes to how you behave with your portfolio can just have these huge impacts on the sustainability of that portfolio. And this is just one of those examples where if I could just skip one distribution from my portfolio, it can mean the difference between winding up with zero and still having most of my initial principal intact at the end of retirement. And so the idea is if I can structure a policy loan from a buffer asset like whole life insurance, then there's a cost to that. The uh, You have a loan that then grows with interest and so forth. But when I do these simulations, typically the gains to the portfolio more than offset the costs of using the buffer asset so that you can repay that loan balance and still have a lot more money left over than you would have had if you were not using a buffer asset. And if you were just simply trying to manage a distribution strategy from an investment portfolio by itself. So, so that's the, the basic idea. It's the gains to the portfolio exceed the costs of using the buffer asset so that you have a better financial outcome. And the, the other types of sort of cash value life insurance policies like a variable or an IUL wouldn't be as ideal as a whole life insurance policy in, in your scenarios because of the underlying sort of unpredictability around the guaranteed premium and cash value growth? Is that is Do I have that right? Right, right. Like a, a variable life insurance policy, the, the cash value can lose value. If you're investing in sub-accounts, it's the same problem with the investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. If markets are down, you don't really have a buffer asset. You're you're going to create sequence risk inside your life insurance policy and mm -hmm. and problems with mm -hmm. that. And that's a little bit different. Like like an index type universal life insurance policy may have that principal protection, but you can still get into trouble if with premiums if the growth in that policy is not matching what the initial illustration showed. So it's not necessarily that the cash value would decline but that there'd be additional pressures on the premiums and so forth. And that makes it harder to think of as a true buffer asset. Gotcha. So the buffer asset class, the things to consider, you said liquidity, getting access to it, and then the ability for it to be, you know, guaranteed to increase in value. Is that, are those the three that, that really make up a true buffer asset? Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't have to increase in value, but at least it's not decreasing in value. Okay. <laughs> That's where cash would not be increasing in value, but unless you're, it's, there's, well, these days it's hard to get interest on your cash, but 
it doesn't, it's just mainly not decreasing in value. And if, if it is increasing in value, like cash value can do, that's an extra bonus for treating it as a buffer asset. Awesome. And, and ha have your models kind of indicated uh, an increase in the safe withdrawal rate by utilizing that buffer strategy? Or is it you're just, that's just what allows you to, to stick with the safe withdrawal rate that you started with? No, no, you can use a higher withdrawal rate from the remaining investments. But to be clear, that's because you're introducing an additional asset. You're, you're mm -hmm. not going to take every distribution from your investments. And mm -hmm. therefore, you can use a higher initial withdrawal rate. But the, uh, the sensitivity there is due to this kind of synergy in managing sequence risk, the increased withdrawal rate that you can use for a given probability of success might be higher than you would have imagined when you have a buffer asset also available to help manage the, the retirement spending strategy. In, in terms of sort of when you would recommend starting to put together these types of plans, right? So you know, the cash value inside of the life insurance policy generally will take, depending on the structure of the policy, will take several years to season, right? And start to continue to accrue. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about retirement planning and, and mitigating some of these sequence of returns risks, what's your recommendation for, for people and in, in terms of timing in, in their lives, when they should start this conversation, start this planning, what's, what's yielded the best results? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is also an area too, where I think a lot of the critics of life insurance would point out it does take a very long time for that cash value to start growing. And, and so you do have to think about this as a long-term strategy. And the other aspect of it, I think the critics always compare the life insurance to stock market investments. And that's not what I'm thinking at all. When I do these simulations, I'm treating it as a bond alternative, not as a stock alternative. And the case studies I generally look at, 35, 40-year-olds who need life insurance for traditional reasons and are just thinking ahead about their retirement planning as well. It was working as well even for the 50-year-old studies I look at. But you might even consider later if insurable, it's just you do need to allow you know a 10-year window or so to let the cash value start to build up before you can really start efficiently using it as a buffer asset. Mm -hmm. You uh, you mentioned the investment only approach. Are, are there instances where the investment only approach would be superior, at least in in your models, based on historical market returns? And if so, what what happened in that in those scenarios to make that the case? Yeah, and, and so the way I look at that is creating a, a case study that whether it's a forty year old or whatever the case may be. They need life insurance for to protect their family. And so they look at, should I buy term and invest the difference, which is sort of the investments only there. It's mm -hmm. let's put as much into our investments as possible by paying the lowest premium on the life insurance versus a strategy where they incorporate a whole life policy with a much higher premium that will reduce what goes into their investments. But then they have this additional asset to use in retirement. And so when I run those simulations, generally the, um, the integrated strategy that uses life insurance will come out ahead of that buy term and invest a different strategy much more often than not. It depends on the exact scenarios, but maybe around mm -hmm. two thirds of the time. But the idea there is it's if markets do extremely well, the buy term and invest a difference might come out ahead. But if, so it's like that one third of the time where markets are doing amazing, 
the two thirds of the time where markets aren't doing as great and, or even they're doing average. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so you're not going to have these huge legacy values at the end necessarily. That's the scenario where the integrated strategy can really come out ahead and support more spending and more legacy throughout that retirement. So, so much more often than half of the time it, when used as a bond replacement. And, and that's where, because of that, when using it as a bond replacement, the um, integrated strategy that includes life insurance still has a pretty hefty exposure to the stock market. So you still do benefit from market gains, but it's coming out ahead more often than not. And also it's providing that risk management of helping to provide better financial outcomes in scenarios where maybe the, the financial markets did not do as great during that retirement horizon and pre-retirement horizon. That's excellent. And you recently discussed sort of a, a refinance, uh, or excuse me, a reverse mortgage, right? For as a potential buffer asset class option. Can you just share mm -hmm. a little bit about sort of what your recent research on that presents and, and why that may make sense for folks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I came across that first, like I started learning about reverse mortgages just because my, my job title is professor of retirement income. So I feel responsibility to make sure I know all the different strategies out there. And there's starting in 2012, there were a bunch of articles published in the journal of financial planning that talked about a coordinated strategy using the reverse mortgage in a coordinated strategy to manage sequence risk. And then I, I learned about that first. And then I learned about life insurance and realized there's an exact parallel conversation. Both the life insurance world and the reverse mortgage world are talking about the exact same concept because with the growing line of credit on a reverse mortgage, that's just like the, the growing cash value of whole life insurance. And in both scenarios, you have something that can grow in value, not decrease in value and you borrow from it, you structure a loan from it that will accumulate with interest and that you can either voluntarily pay down or you can save it so that it would be deducted either from the home value at the end or from the uh, death benefit of the life insurance at the end. So it's a very similar parallel conversation in how both of those approaches work in almost an identical manner. I mean, there's differences between them in terms of how the loan balance grows and, and the setup costs and everything, but the underlying fundamentals, it's the exact same conversation. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. As we sort of wrap up the general conversation, you know, again, this is going to be an evolving conversation and, and we're constantly in this and, and getting more and more uh, information as you update your data, uh, Wade, where can the listening audience sort of find out a little bit more about you and a little, little bit more about some of the things that you're, you're publishing these days? Sure. And so my website is retirementresearcher.com. And we put out a weekly email list that comes on Saturday mornings. And it's free to sign up if anyone would like to do that. And then I finally published my retirement planning guidebook, which is my life's effort at putting into one volume what I really think people need to know for right planning a successful retirement. Yeah, yeah, there it is. The retirement is. planning guide. Nice, nice, nice book. Nice feeling. It's nice and hefty. <laughs> it's thick, yeah. And it's available easily on Amazon or most any other bookseller that you might like to use. Wonderful. I, I will say, so I, I have a, a few of Wade's books. I just finished reading the reverse mortgage book. You know, a lot of these concepts can be very technical, can be very heavy on the analysis. Wade, I think you do just a great job of 
simplifying it in your writing and making it very easy for for people, both professionals, but also uh, the lay person to understand. So I appreciate it. Yeah, Yeah. thanks. That's always my goal to do that, to make it simple. I do get sometimes the low reviews saying this is too hard to understand. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's all these rules for how social security claiming and tax regulations and everything else that there's only so easy you can explain things. And <laughs> But I do my best to try to make it straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it can be a, a complicated topic, right? It's not just, it's not just growing your assets to the biggest number and, and then just ride mm-hmm. off into the sunset. There's a lot of <laughs> factors that play into it, whether it's taxes, uh, you know, different product lines or strategies and how you utilize them all together. So yeah, it's important to to work with a professional and, and utilize resources like your website and podcasts and books to just be more informed. Yeah. Evan, as we, you know, we've got to wait here for maybe a couple more minutes. So, you know, one last opportunity to ask any questions that, that we didn't get a chance to ask. Do you have anything on your mind that you want to, you want to, uh, yeah, wait, I'm, wait. I'm curious, uh, what are you working on? What are you working on these days? Or what's the newest uh, study or models that you're building that you're working on or thinking about? Yeah, the the two big things right now for me are just this idea of retirement income styles of, mm. so an investments only approach is fine for some people and other people might like more safety by incorporating insurance into their planning and and just trying to help people identify which which approach resonates better with them in terms of their underlying personality so it's that's the retirement income style awareness and then also i'm really interested in tax efficient retirement distributions right now and looking at strategies around roth conversions and and other approaches to improve the longevity of assets or to leave behind like creating more efficiency more more legacy at the end of retirement when the plan works by strategically managing taxes. And we have to pay taxes, but the idea is find opportunities to pay them at the lowest possible rates rather than at higher than necessary rates. Is And forgive me if I'm oversimplifying this, but is the fun, like fundamentally, what is what you're talking about there, the order at which you spend down certain assets or mixing and matching? <laughs> is that kind of what you're thinking about there? Yeah, yeah, blending to account for not just federal income taxes or, or state income taxes, but also all these call them non-linearities in the tax code about how generating a dollar of income could cause you to have to pay taxes on another 85 cents of your social security or the Medicare premium surcharges that happen generally at higher income levels. And and there's even now I've been looking more directly at the subsidies with the Affordable Care Act plans and how having income can lead to a pretty significant loss in subsidies and and just how all these different types of factors interact and how to try to manage them to decide where should I be spending from and should I be doing things like Roth conversions in, in retirement. Right. And, and looking at, I'm imagining you're evaluating that sort of on the accumulation sort of spectrum, right? And then maybe the five to 10 years pre and post retirement and then sort of the distribution on the on the back end of that. Is that is that kind of how you're you're lining that up or? Yeah, yeah. In that regard, it actually, the models I've developed, you could start even when you're 20 years old, because mm-hmm. you have in that scenario, you do have to project your future salary. But uh, based on all of your assumptions around your future earnings, it would start to look for what kind of tax levels should you be managing so that you could then decide, should I be contributing to a Roth right now? Or should I be contributing to a tax deferred uh, account right now? And, and then 
generally when you're working, you're not going to be doing as many Roth conversions unless you have low income years. But eventually, as you get closer to that transition to retirement, the same sort of modeling approach might start to suggest it's time to do some Roth conversions as well if, if you had been putting money into the tax deferred account. I'll, I'll add one really interesting concept that I'd really never thought of when I was reading the reverse mortgage book was possibly leverage or utilizing the reverse mortgage line of credit for a Roth conversion. Mm -hmm. And then what that'll do for eliminating RMDs, but also then the longevity of those then tax-free distributions or just growing that money tax-free thereafter. thought that was just an interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah. And that's related to the buffer asset. Cause like in 2022, it can be a great time to do Roth conversions because you get to do them at a discount, so to mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. But if you have to sell assets to pay the taxes, then that falls apart. And that's where having something that doesn't lose value in that manner could be a resource to pay the taxes on a Roth conversion in a down market year. And, and that could be a way to improve the efficiency of the plan as well. Absolutely. Wait, as, as we kind of wrap up here, you know, are there any things that you want to make sure that the listening audience kind of takes away any things that we haven't discussed or sort of, you know, one, one quick concept that you want to make sure we, we get across? No, no, I think we, we covered things pretty well. It's that just, I mean, with the retirement income styles idea, I'm, I'm agnostic about how people want to approach retirement and just want to find what will work best for them, whether it's investments, whether it is incorporating tools like annuities or life insurance. It's just try and, and generally just suggest people try to be agnostic. I get a lot of tomatoes thrown at me with <laughs> mentioning financial products that don't always have a, a good view in the conventional wisdom. But But that issue is you can't look at tools in isolation because then they may look expensive. But it's like I was saying, it's not in isolation what the life insurance does or what a, a reverse mortgage does. It's how does that contribute to the overall plan? And if it's helping to preserve investments, that's how it can help to lead to a better overall outcome, even net of its costs. And, and so that's the really important point at the end of the day is you can't look at things in isolation. You have to look at how the pieces fit together and how costs in one area can lead to bigger benefits in other areas and how that can then lead to a better overall outcome. So that's really what guides me with a lot of this type of research. Well, we certainly appreciate you. Honestly, it feels like we're talking to a celebrity, you know, in, 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 our, in our, in our office, you're uh, a celebrity to us. So we, we really appreciate you, Wade. Thank you so much. And again, to the listening audience, you can, uh, find more information on Amazon, pick up Wade's book or, or retirementresearcher.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Opus Well Style podcast. Uh, please click below to subscribe to be notified when we have future episodes. And um, again, guys, I appreciate you both and, and uh, looking forward to more conversations. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Wade. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and your financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make a recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Life insurance is intended to provide death benefit protection for an individual's entire life. With payment of the required guaranteed premiums, you may receive a guaranteed death benefit and guaranteed cash values inside the policy. Guarantees are based on the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. 
Dividends are not guaranteed and are declared annually by the issuing insurance company's board of directors. Any loans or withdrawals reduce the policy's death benefits and cash values and affect the policy's dividend and guarantees. Whole life insurance should be considered for its long-term value. Early cash value accumulation and early payment of dividends depend upon policy type and or policy design, and cash value accumulation is offset by insurance and company expenses. Consult with your representative and refer to your life insurance illustration for more information about any particular life insurance policy. J. Wade Fow and his firm are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Yvonne Watanabe and Evan Wool are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client, LLC, is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206. Compliance Approval 2022-146037. Expires August of 2024.